Greetings and welcome to another Different Church Podcast. My name is Jarrett and I hope you are having an awesome day. I'm recording this intro at 12.07 on Sunday night slash Monday morning. And today was another really great day at church. I just want to say a huge thank you and shout out to everybody who has attended uh, the past two weeks. It's been really cool. We've been uh, just going through the very beginnings of uh, the book of Genesis. We're doing a study all the way through it. It's the first time we've ever done anything like that. And, uh, you know, we didn't really know exactly what to expect, whether or not people would, would love it. And it's crazy. The, the past two weeks have been like <clears throat> two of our most full services, like back to back ever, probably. So a huge shout out to you for, for showing up and attending. Thank you so much. And everybody who has been watching on Facebook or YouTube or listening on the podcast, thank you as well. Couldn't do it without you. Okay, so as I said, today is the second week of Genesis. We are going to jump in in just a moment. Uh, But before we do, I want to uh, share another song with you guys and just a couple of announcements. Uh, First, the announcements. Uh, First of all, go to diff.church. We would love to connect with you. That is a great way to um, put yourself in our mailing list, to um, shoot us a note. We can uh, pray for you. There's a tab there that if you want us to pray about anything for you, we we would love to, uh, you know, help uh, pray something that you're in need of or something that you're celebrating. Either one. We would love to uh, just, you know, know. Um, It's really cool to be connected to people. Uh, We've got a ton of uh, people who are interested in what we're doing that aren't even, you know, in our city. Um, And so we're super thankful for our online presence and uh, it's just really neat to be able to connect with people all over the place. Okay, while you were at diff.church, click on events. We've got two events coming up. The first one is a beach day on the 18th. And the second one is we are going to a magic show on the 25th. You do have to buy tickets for that one. The beach day, obviously, is free minus uh, parking. So go to diff.church, click on events, and you can get the details for those events, okay? Uh, if you don't care about listening to this song, just jump ahead a couple minutes and you can hear Hannah jump into the second part of our Genesis study. If you do want to hear some music, stick around here and listen to a song by Need to Breathe called Into the Mystery.
because this is our second week of Genesis. You guys don't seem as excited as I am. <laughs> we are continuing our series on Genesis this week. If you missed last week, you can go listen to the podcast, which I highly recommend, not just because I'm amazing and you should listen to everything I say forever, um, but because we did cover a lot of really foundational information last week that will help you as we go forward. Um, so just to have that understanding, I think will make everyone a little bit more comfortable. If you're new here, we are tackling the most controversial book in the Bible, in my opinion. The only one that even comes close is Revelation. We'll do that sometime. Uh, if you like to dip deeper, if you have time to do that, you can check out these two books. This is where I draw a lot from. The Genesis for Normal People and the Evolution of Adam by Pete Enns and Jared Bias. But if you don't want to do that, you'd rather like you know watch TV in your house at the end of the day, which is what I want to do. Noah goes to sleep and I'm like, well, time to lay on the couch and stare at the wall. You can just listen to what I say today, and you'll just know everything you need to know forever. The end. Now, we're going to start in the beginning. Genesis, like modern Christians, I feel like we're trained to think of Genesis this way. In the beginning, God created a cosmic ball of Play-Doh out of nothing. Poof. Because Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void and chaotic, and darkness covered the face of the deep whatever that is, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. So that sounds like we're starting from nothing, right? Also, I feel like we're kind of coming in on the middle of something. So despite the words, God created the heavens and earth, it seems like something was already there. So we have some, this mysterious deep 
We also have water. Where did the water come from? Um, it says in the beginning, but it feels like we're walking into the middle of something that's already occurring. Now, we have to suspend our 21st century views of the universe and science and history for a moment and enter the world where these stories were written. There are other stories of creation in the ancient world. In fact, virtually every single culture has one, and they don't start from nothing and go to something. Now, the thing that is hardest for us to wrap our modern minds around is that ancient storytellers just like don't seem interested in explaining how the Earth got here. Not in any scientific sense. It's just like not on their radar. They just assume something existed to begin with. Um, the story in Genesis is not focusing on how this chaos, this desolate wasteland got there. It's focusing on the Earth being chaos. So the Hebrew word that is translated as chaos, or perhaps if you grew up in church, you've heard it translated formless and void. We tend to think that means nothing. Um, the Hebrew word is tohu bohu. It's a fun word. It sounds like a fancy food. Tohu means formless, and bohu means empty. So this compound word in English means something like utterly chaotic. Why? Who cares? Because when we use the word chaos instead of nothing, I think that we can begin to understand the ancient mindset about the beginning of the world and how God creates. Because in the ancient world, gods didn't create out of nothing. The world looks the way it does because God tamed the chaos. Genesis is Israel's story about who is truly responsible for taming the chaos and making this place habitable. The uniqueness of Israel's God is not that God's like, there's nothing and now there's something. It's that God has this swift, invincible power that no other gods in the ancient world had, that he tamed the chaos alone in six days with apparently almost no effort. He was just like, hey, here you go, the end. And all the other gods, as we will talk about later, had much more violent beginnings to the world. This is a very big contrast. So how does God tame the chaos? So first, where there is no form, or tohu, God makes habitable, ordered space. And then, where there is emptiness, bohu, God makes things to fill the space. So on days one through three, God creates space, and on days four through six, God fills the space. Here's an example. Imagine you want to host like a game night at your house, and you're very excited about this. You're going to have some friends over. It's going to have snacks. It's going to be amazing. And you get home, and your family has turned your kitchen table, where you're going to have this game night, into a dumping ground. There's backpacks, old snacks, something sticky left over from breakfast. It's just a nightmare. There's shoes everywhere. That's how it is in my house. There's like crusty stuff that Nova didn't eat on the floor under the table. And you're like, what am I supposed to do? I can't have people over looking like this, right? So you begin to clean it up. You have to create a space to even set out the board, to set out the fake money, to set out the snacks and the drinks. You have to create the space so that you can fill it. And this is what is similar to what's happening in Genesis 1 because God puts things in order before setting up the space. Because we begin with a dark, churning ocean called the deep, mysterious, and nothing else. And on day one, God creates space for the sun and the moon and the stars, the things that give off light. But the sun and the moon and the stars don't actually get created until day four. Now, obviously, the moon doesn't give off light. It reflects light. But the ancient Israelites wouldn't have known that, and that's kind of the point, right? 
On day one, God creates space, so on day four, it can be filled with celestial objects. On day two, God creates space for birds and sea creatures, things that in the ancient mindset didn't need land to exist. And then on day five, the birds and the sea creatures are created. And then on day three, God moves the oceans to the side so that dry land can appear, so all the land animals and finally humans can come into existence. And then on day six, they're created. God's separating the waters above from the waters below with something called a firmament. We'll get to that in a second. This is the overall picture. We begin with chaos, and by the end of day six, we have air and land and sea and all the things that make life possible and the creatures to live there. And God has done all of this with apparently no effort in six days. Now, sometimes as modern readers of Genesis, we tend to go one of two directions here. Either we're like, what a quaint ancient story. Who would believe such a ridiculous tale? And we just disregard it entirely. Or we're on the other side of the fence and we're like, this must be, because it's in the Bible, exactly scientific and historical truth. Because it's in the Bible and God said it, therefore it's true. And I think both of those ways of thinking actually sell the Bible short. So we're gonna think just for a moment about the ancient understanding of the cosmos which I'm excited about. I don't know about you guys, but I'm putting my professor hat on, and so you guys just get to learn some stuff, okay? I have a picture. You probably even won't be able to see it very well, but I'll just make some wild hand motions so everyone will be on the same page, okay? So in Genesis, the cosmos is described in ancient terms, which should not surprise us because the book was written by ancient people for ancient people using a language that is dead now. It was not written for us and it certainly was not written in English. One good example of how Genesis reflects the ancient view of the world is on day two when God creates the sky. But it's not like any sky we've ever experienced. This sky is somehow solid. It's called a firmament. This firmament is some sort of vault or dome above the earth that separates the waters above from the waters below. Here's an example. If you're camping, you will never catch me camping. I'm not going to work all year so I can then go sleep outside. <laughs> but if that's your journey, I love that for you, okay? <laughs> you just imagine you're camping, you're just like living your best life, you love being outside, it's so great. Torrential downpour. But don't worry, you built yourself a very sturdy tent and you are safe and dry inside. There is water above and something is keeping it off of you, yes? And hopefully your tent has a floor that's keeping the water from running into your sleeping bag. I've never been in a tent, so I'm just imagining. I hope there's a floor in your tent. So that's one example. You're safe. You're safe in your little bubble. I keep hitting this microphone. I feel like I need to scoot over. I'm going to end up with some bruises. Here's another example. A snow globe in a bathtub. <laughs> um, everyone knows what a snow globe is, I assume. You know, it's like very fancy inside, like little figurines. They're just living. They're so happy. And you plunk it in a bathtub. There's a separation between the water that's all around them and this perfect little habitable space inside the snow globe. Does this help at all? Kind of. I mean, we're not ancient people, right? We're modern people. We're trying to wrap our mind around something that seems completely ridiculous. The ancient people had no concept of an ever-expanding universe, okay? They had no concept of the Earth being round. This is their Earth. It's, first of all, flat. Well, of course it's flat. You couldn't like send a text to someone and be like, hey, is the earth curved where you are? <laughs> like, no, it didn't exist. So there's water above 
and there's water below. The firmament is the dome that holds the water up so that life could exist in the space where the humans are. And the earth is held together, tied down, if you want to use a tent metaphor, with pillars of the earth, mountains, because there's water underneath. Something had to be anchoring this land, right? Otherwise, you'd be swept away. Now, why would you think that there's water in the sky being held up by a glass ceiling? Because the sky is blue, the same color as the water. And, and when it rains, water comes from the sky. So there must be water up there. Otherwise, how, how is it raining on us? There are even these things called floodgates. If you've been around church, you'd be like, open the floodgates of heaven. We like to put that in worship songs. These are actual things that people, ancient, ancient people believed in. You could open the floodgates of heaven and water would come out because there was water up there. That was their understanding. These are, of course, what opened when, in the story of Noah when the whole world drowns. The water above and the water below come together. So the next time you read Genesis 1, picture a snow globe. Humans had just this little space to occupy. Little tiny space that was ordered and kind of hospitable to life. And everything out the, outside the dome was chaos, wild, waste, the deep. Now, last week, we talked about how the Torah was canonized and collected, the first five books of the Bible, around the time of the Babylonian exile, when the Israelites were forcibly removed from their home and carted off to Babylon. You can actually find a jab or two at the Babylonian gods in this story. For example, the Babylonians were like very big on astrology and the sun and the moon and the stars, and some, some of them even worshiped them. And they were at least, these heavenly bodies were at least thought to tell the future. They would like prescribe things for your life. For the Israelites, these heavenly bodies serve no such purpose whatsoever. They are just passive agents. They serve God only by marking time. And not even the time of seasons, the time of liturgical seasons. God creates these things just so that you can mark time of how to worship God. Another knock on the Babylonians is that Israel's God works by himself. So in the Babylonian creation story, the Enuma Elish, um, there's a soap opera an ancient soap opera, proving that humans have always been the same <laughs> and will never change. So this is how the Babylonians decided that the earth existed. The god Marduk had a long-standing fight, apparently, with his great-grandmother Tiamat, and he was so upset with her that he cut her in half, not this way, this way, from top to bottom, and then made the dome, the firmament, out of her body. And it was like, ta-da! You're welcome. Now, Israel's God, in contrast, gets in no fights, has no grievances with anyone, and does not resort to violence in order to make the earth a habitable place. Just speaks, and space is created. Solo and effortlessly. They're basically saying, oh, you Babylonians, you think you're so strong capturing us, but our God, he could just like think. He just think and you'd be wiped out. And then humans are created as God's crowning achievement. And we like this part. We're like, yes, we are. <clears throat> I'm so great. Humans are wonderful. We love that part. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. Why is this important? Because in the ancient world, kings would put images of themselves, like in the most farthest part of their kingdom. They'd put like paintings and statues and put themselves on coins. And be like, just in case you forgot, I'm watching you. Remember my face. You must always know that I am your king. But humans are the divine image bearers. All humans, male and female, 
or have been elevated to this status of divine image bearers in God's kingdom. In fact, humanity's status is so high that the Jews later wrote stories about how angels were jealous of humans. They were like, I cannot believe that God would make this race of humans who would dare to be as good as we are. They don't, they're humans, these pesky little, ugh, they're awful. I can't believe that God would think that they would bear God's image. This elevation of humans is not like other ancient creation stories. In the Babylonian creation stories, humans are definitely not made in the image of God at all. They have nothing to do with the gods. In another ancient creation story, um, humans are created as an afterthought because the gods like, created everything and then they were like, oh no, someone has to farm the land and like, clean up our mess. We need someone to do our manual labor and then they created humans to do that. And in the Israelite story, all humans are elevated to this status, not just of a grunt worker, not of somebody who was an afterthought, but as something who was, that was deliberately and specifically created to be like God in the world. And maybe that's a comment, an ancient Israelite comment on equality. Perhaps being exiled and forcibly removed from your home and for a whole generation before you're allowed to come back gave them a clearer sense of the value of life. Genesis 1 is this ancient statement of faith that the God of Israel alone is worthy of Israel's worship. As tempting as it may have been to follow the gods of stronger nations, and it was very tempting, I don't know if you've read the Old Testament, but constantly the Israelites are like, well, that God looks very cool though. <laughs> Can we just go shopping over there for that God? Like, no, this Genesis 1 was crafted to remind the Israelites that even though other people may switch gods, like we change streaming services, they were not allowed to do this. Be, why? Because their God alone was the one responsible for taming the chaos and making a habitable space for humans to live in and filling the world around us. Genesis was not written in some kind of secret code so that we would think that Israelites had like a basic understanding of how the universe came into existence or like the Big Bang or like the theory of relativity or the ever-expanding universe. No ancient person, not just the Israelites, would have any idea what you were talking about. Like if you just pulled one of them out, like the person who gave the final sign-off on Genesis be like, yes, final editing, good, stamp approved. You'd be like, well, so have you thought about um, the Latin, like out of nothing, nothing comes, and like God spoke, and then poof, the world was created, and do you know about the theory of relativity? And they would just be like, I'm sorry, what are you talking about? This would not even on their radar. No ancient person had any, any understanding of these concepts. I'm not entirely sure we have a good understanding of these concepts either. Like, I can say the theory of relativity. Don't ask me to explain it to you. Genesis was written to tell the Israelites that their God and not the gods of other nations was the chaos tamer and therefore worthy of their worship. And I know we keep coming back to this, but like they made the point in ancient ways, using ancient ways of thinking, and they were ancient people. Like when the Babylonians told stories of angry gods cutting each other in half to create the world, the Israelite response was not, you're so silly. God, you're so dumb. <laughs> Don't you know all this talk about the gods is just primitive? <laughs> Don't you know that there really isn't any solid structure above the earth keeping water at bay? Don't you know that the stars are actually billions of light years away and the earth is in fact round, not flat? And it revolves around the sun. You should get with the program. Like, it seems ridiculous to even think 
that the ancient Israelites would have had that conversation. And yet I feel like this is what happens when we read our own modern understanding of science back into this text that was created 2,500 years ago. The Israelites were using a view of the universe that already existed, that they were familiar with, to make a unique statement of faith. And this statement was, our God, no matter what you might think of us, as a captured people, is not weak. Our God is in fact stronger than all of your gods put together. And later in the Exodus story, this becomes a rallying cry for the Israelites. Not only is our God the one who makes this possible, our God is the creator, he's also the deliverer. Our God is the redeemer. Yahweh, which is the name for Israel's God, as creator and deliverer are the two things that mark Israel's God off from every other God that existed in the ancient world. And this is why Yahweh alone could expect their devotion. This is also why worshiping the gods of other nations was perhaps the worst thing you could do. Even if other people were just jumping around, they're like, oh, I've got my list of household gods and then my city gods and then my country gods. And you know, just a couple extras just in case. Oh, you have a different God? I'll add that to my list and we'll just pray to everyone. No, the Israelites again and again, they were like, we can't do this. This is not allowed. Why? Because abandoning Yahweh was to abandon the one who made life possible for them. The band can come back up. This is part of the beauty of this story because Yahweh makes life possible. And the Israelites are telling this ancient story to preserve the beauty of what they understand about the world. And I think we have to give them some credit for this. Like they created such a liter literary gem that like we are still talking about it 2,500 years later. What other stories are 2,500 years old that you're, we're still talking about? The opening chapter of the Bible is not like slapped together like a last minute term paper. Like it is crafted. It's beautiful, it's subtle, it's challenging, it's artistically composed. The theology is deep, especially against the ancient backdrop of the other culture's theology. What? This makes sense, right? Because storytellers, not academics, wrote this. They weren't like having someone read it and be like, you know what, this doesn't make sense, that wouldn't happen in real life every five seconds. I, like, just imagine if you were watching Lord of the Rings and every, your friend paused it every five seconds and be like, that's not what happens in real life. If you don't experience that friend, if you've never experienced that friend, that's because you're that person. <laughs> like, I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, I know some of you are having like a small panic attack right now because I, you think I'm comparing like the story of the creation of the world to Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Um, and I feel like that's a great place to leave this message. Okay, so if you're uncomfortable, first of all, take a breath. <sighs> Let, shake it out, okay? <laughs> Sit with this. I want you to try and give yourself the space to process the story of God and the story of the Bible and the story of how God made order out of chaos and this ancient understanding of a world that looked completely different to them than what it looks like to us. Give yourself space to that. Also remember that saying it's a story in Genesis does not necessarily mean that everything in the Bible is fiction. Okay, I don't want you to leave here being like, nothing, you just pulled, pulled the creation brick out so I can't believe anything that was written in the Bible. Like I can tell you what I ate for breakfast. I had a protein bar. That's a fact. However, it's still a story that I'm telling you. The question is, 
what are we gonna do with it, right? So how does information about how the ancient people understood the world and the creation of the world, how can we sit with that? How can that affect our faith? Because stories are not waiting to be modeled to fit our experience. They're waiting for us to enter the story and be affected by it. So, you know, if you grew up like evangelical and you're feeling like very nervous right now, it's okay. I give you permission to feel nervous. <laughs> and if this doesn't affect you at all, like bless you, I'm so happy that you had a religious upbringing that didn't scar you at all. <laughs> I wish I could say that was my life. <laughs> Next week, we're gonna talk about, you may have noticed we only talked about Genesis 1 today. In Genesis 2, there is another story of creation. It actually contradicts Genesis 1. They are not the same. The order of creation is not the same. And so next week, we're going to talk about Adam and Eve and what happens in Genesis 2. But until then, just reflect. Just give yourself space to be a little uncomfortable, maybe, with a, with a text that's 2,500 years old. Older than really we can even wrap our minds around. We have two more songs. Um, the band's going to kill it. I love that we have a harp today. I feel like it makes us look very, very fancy. <laughs> uh, much fancier than we actually are. Thank you, Seth. Um, we have two more songs, and then I'll come back and give you a benediction, and then we will go have an excellent Sunday and discuss Genesis at Three Daughters. <laughs>